to be an entrepreneur, to take this kind of risk, you have to have a tolerance for ambiguity. And so anybody that is, you know, going to go into this world and start a business, I don't care what it is, there's going to be times when there's going to be uncertainty. You're not going to know how you're going to get that technical thing fixed or who you're going to find to do that or how you're going to replace this employee that was key. Lots of these hurdles get in the way and there's always this ambiguity going on around you. You have to learn to embrace that a little bit. That's not easy, but I would say that if I had advice for people that were going to go enter into a business for themselves to prepare for that and just be ready and don't let it get to you. Just keep persevering and you'll overcome it. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by CBRE. CBRE is the global leader in real estate operations, providing solutions to the world's largest energy, oil, and gas companies. CBRE supports their clients' facilities, both upstream and downstream, without compromising safety by delivering strategies that optimize operations, reduce costs, and risks. Unlock the power of your energy, oil, and gas portfolio with CBRE. Learn more at www.cbre.com forward slash EOG. Before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to ask everyone to support the show by taking a few moments to leave a review in iTunes. It helps people find it. Plus, I like to hear feedback. I say this every show, and I think I've only had one. All right. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGGN laptop hard hat stickers, check out the show notes for a 10-second survey, and we will get those shipped off to you. Make sure you reach out to Audrey Zen. Email is in the show notes. All right. Well, let's go ahead and introduce this week's guest. I'm with George Sutherland, president of Kinetic Upstream Technologies. How are you, George? Doing well. Thank you. Good. Well, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. All righty. By the way, I like those sticker packets. That might be handy. It used to be stickers were like gold on rigs. Oh, I bet. I bet. I mean, are you dating yourself, though? <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, I wouldn't be on here if I probably wasn't dated, you know. <laughs> That's fair. But it was. Stickers were a big deal. We still, you know, hand out stickers, too. So I'll have to send you some. Oh, perfect. That'd be greatly appreciated. Anyway, I got started in the oil field because when I graduated high school out of San Antonio, I wanted science and I studied geology. And I really thought I wanted to participate in the oil and gas business. I thought finding oil, drilling for oil was going to be cool. It was exciting. And so, yeah, I got a geology degree from University of Texas. And subsequently hook them horns, and suddenly I was uh, thrust into the oil field. I got hired by Schlumberger. It was actually a company called The Analyst at the time, then it became Anadrill Schlumberger, then it became renamed to be Schlumberger D&M. I almost didn't get that job. I had one of my grandfather passed away, and I ended up 
missing the phone call to come for the interview. And this was back in 84 when the market, that was my first experience with a market collapse in the old business. And it happened about the time I graduated. But I got an offer. I called him back and begged him to let me come for an interview because by that time it passed. Anyway, I got the interview and joined as a mudlogger for the analyst and moved to Corpus Christi and worked there for about a year. And the oil field continued to collapse. And I was offered a job in New Orleans, same type of job, but I'd moved into MLWD measurement while drilling, logging while drilling, kind of a, at the time it was very new to the industry. We can talk a little more about that, but I ended up moving myself to New Orleans because the market had collapsed and I wasn't being offered a paid move, but I managed to move and I started working offshore in the MLWD world, directional drilling world. It was exciting. I got to work offshore for the first probably three or four years, Gulf of Mexico. I transferred to offshore California. I worked out there. Some of the old, there were some old Chevron rigs out there, some ExxonMobil rigs. I did some directional drilling, MLWD work on those. And then I got offered one of the funnest jobs I think I ever had in the oil field, and that was to be a training director for North America for Schlumberger. At the time, it was the Anadrill Schlumberger. And so I was able to run a training department, training mostly field personnel on how to really run MLWD tools and directional tools on rigs. But truthfully, it has evolved into really how to deliver service. Because at the end of the day, as a service company, you have to deliver a service. And that means a whole lot of things besides just making this neat technology function. Right. Right. You have to pay to that. And so I was able to do that for a while. And then I got into line management, started managing field personnel, then became a, what they called at the time, a country manager, moved to the Middle East. I ran operations out of the Middle East, directional drilling, fishing operations, Again, measurement while drilling operations, ran that operation, ran about half of the Middle East for Schlumberger, D&M, and then ended up leaving Schlumberger. I had a unique opportunity to join a couple of colleagues and start working on some new technology that had just come about in the industry called rotary steerable drilling. Uh huh. And so I was able to move back to Houston. We started up developing from scratch a technology that allowed you to rotate 100% of the time, rotate the drill pipe from the surface and still deviate the wellbore in a controlled way and place the wellbore where it needed to be for optimum production or as the customer wanted it to be placed. So we embarked on that path for about seven years, designed, developed and built some technology. And actually, we ended up fielding the first ever rotary steerable tool. If you discount the extreme short radius devices, one was called the Sidewinder that Amico developed in the, I guess, late 80s. This was a technology for a 12 and a quarter inch hole, and it was only utilized offshore. And we ended up taking that technology. We ran offshore Gulf of Mexico, ran offshore California, ran offshore Sicily, Trinidad. So we went across the globe taking this brand new technology that had never been run and commercialized it. 
That's awesome. That's really cool. And that was a big leap of faith, but very exciting at the time. And all the things you can think of, of starting a small company from nothing. Yes, we went down that path. And, you know, I look back on it with mixed emotions. There's a lot of hard times, but a lot of good times. And and we ended up doing pretty well in that. And then we ended up divesting of that technology from a group through Shell Technology Ventures, ended up divesting of us into Halliburton and that technology joined the Halliburton fleet for a while. And I was over there for about 12 years and did various things in the business. One was continue to be the rotary steerable champion. And by that time, those companies already had some version of a rotary steerable tool they were fielding as well. And so I got to work with that technology further as it evolved. And then, of course, continued with the full directional drilling services and then moved into some of the completion things and ended up becoming a senior executive there. And yeah, I ended up running operations, mostly my operations, business development, commercializing products was pretty much what I did at the large companies. And then one of my ex-partners in our first rotary steerable venture approached me and had some ideas. That was Jeff Lassiter. That's my partner today. Had some ideas on how to rebuild what we had done in the past, but make it better. And so we embarked on that about five years ago. Early 2017, we formed our company Kinetic Upstream, and we continued to build the next generation rotary steerable technology, of which we're currently commercializing. We have relationships in the Middle East, and we're running some in Latin America and mostly here in North America with that. And so, Very good. Very good. So when did it hit you, oh, I need to start my own company? You know... That was one of those things where it's just something I think I always had in the back of my mind that it's someday I wanted to be able to kind of put my thumbprint on something and call the shots, you know, be in charge of A to Z. Always had that desire to do that from an early age, I think. And so I was always leaning towards that. And I think it was just the opportunity that was presented at the time. Rotary steerable technology was new and it was exciting I knew it was right in my space for what I knew about directional drilling. A couple of my partners had some old technology and had an idea. And yeah, I jumped on board with it and ran with it. Very good. So explain exactly what Kinetic does and some of the services you provide. So Kinetic Upstream Technologies, we were formed in order to provide unique drilling tools. Our flagship product is what we call the Kinetic Contour it is a rotary steerable device, meaning that we can steer the wellbore from the surface while still rotating the pipe 100% of the time. Today, most wells are deviated still. Most wells, rotary steers catching on, but most wells are drilled today using steerable mud motors, directional wells, and they're bent. And so when you have that down hole, you stop rotating from the surface you orient that bend in a particular direction and then you push on the pipe. The bit is turning because mud flow is flowing through the pipe. And so by stopping the rotation at the surface, you're able to orient that bend and push on the pipe and that builds a curve. And you monitor that curve using survey instruments, namely measurement while drilling tools. And then that tells us how to, when we can start rotating the pipe or when we need to orient the direction in a different orientation. And you continue that process. 
The problem with that was that it's very slow relative to rotating the pipe from the surface. And that's what started rotary steerable off in the early days. Motor drilling was effective, but it was very slow. When you stopped rotating the pipe from the surface and pushed on the pipe, your ROP could drop by tenfold. You know, in this business, drilling business, time is money. Oh, yeah. If you're not making whole, you're wasting money. And so ROP or rate of penetration was important. And rotary steerable technology really improved on the speed at which we could drill wells because we didn't have to orient a steerable motor in order to achieve the objective. We could rotate all the time. That has been the main emphasis with rotary steerable and why it is gotten a lot of traction and continues to get traction is really because the rate of penetration, the speed at which we drill is improved. It also allows you to drill smoother well bores because motors drill kind of a sausage well bore, a well bore that's over gauge and then engage and over gauge and engage. A rotary steerable tool drills a smoother well bore. Therefore, you have better chance of getting casing down. You get better completions. So ultimately, you can produce more oil and gas from a well in addition to drilling it faster. Very good. And so well bore quality became a driver for that as well. Understandable. Completely understandable. All right. Well, let's get into some leadership stuff. Why don't we? So, George, what is leadership to you? Well, well, leadership, you know, for me, it's being the guy that everybody will look up to, not from what you say, but from what you do and how you behave and how you act. You know, characters defined by what you do when nobody's watching. I think a leader has to demonstrate those kind of leadership skills, honesty, integrity, forthrightness, truthfulness, making hard decisions, always willing to step up, do something that other people maybe won't do. Kind of goes back to actions speak louder than words. I think so. Yeah. I think that's very important. I mean, if you're not going to do that as a leader, you don't get respect. People don't want to follow you. I think also leaders have to be, you know, glass half full people. Yeah. You have to be looking at what's our next step, what's going to make us better, and why should we hang on and keep towing this rope? Why should we all keep towing the line here? And there has to be a leader has to articulate that vision and has to clearly articulate it to the troops and get them to tow the line with you. Because, you know, we call it around here. It's like making soup around, you know, the small company. We maybe don't get to pick and choose, you know, all the right skill sets. We okay. basically hire good people. We find out what they're good at. And then we see what gaps are left that we haven't filled. And then we're going to go search to fill that gap. And of course, when you fill that gap with somebody, they bring some other things to the party that you end up discovering. And so other gaps get filled with it. So it's really recognizing, you know, good leaders going to recognize where those gaps are, recognize good people when you have them and, you know, treat people the way that they need to be treated. You'd like to treat people evenly and fairly according to policies, et cetera. But a lot of times, you know, it's kind of like children. You can't treat them all the same. You, Different people, people are different. You have to treat them the way that they need to be treated. That's pretty fair. Yeah, no, I see that. Yeah. You have to know it too. So sometimes discovering that's a problem. Yeah, no, I get it. I got two kids. I see where you're coming from. So do you have an example, George, of a difficult experience you've had as an in leadership? (laughs) 
Well, the classic one that we all have in this oil field service business that we're in is when there's a downturn, oil prices drop, rigs drop, the opportunities for work drop, and you really can't afford to hang on to people because in the service business, people is up there, if not the top two in expenditures for what you spend on. And so you have to start laying people off. You have to reorganize and reset. And so some of the hardest things I've ever had to do was make hard decisions on who we were going to retain and who we were going to have to let go during a downturn. That was tough. And it's still tough. It's tough anytime you have to do it. So I've been a few of, of those situations before. Yeah, that's probably one of the toughest things I've ever been through. Yeah, I think that's pretty tough for all leaders. And then you find out you don't know if you're next, you know. It's just, you don't know. And I will tell you, a lot of times, you know, there's some people you kind of let go. You know, you go, well, this probably isn't for them anyway. And you can kind of justify it. It's still painful. But in the end, it's you're letting go good people a lot of times, especially, you know, this last downturn, it was pretty difficult. You're letting people go that, you know, have a future in this business. Yeah. No, you're absolutely 100% right. I was part of that. Yeah, I made it through three rounds. So yeah, well, good. And now I do this. (laughs) Yeah. And I would tell people too. you know, you can't let that define you. You got to, you know, you got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep going and know that, you know, sometimes you just fell in the wrong spot. You're in the wrong department, the wrong place at the wrong time. And you got to get past it and move on and then find out, you know, where else you can contribute. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the most rewarding thing about being a leader? Uh, The most rewarding thing is really seeing other people get excited about the results that they've accomplished, about what they're doing or what they're going to go do. Obviously, having success as a team brings joy to everyone. And when those things happen, you need to celebrate them and make sure everybody, even if they played a very small part in that, need to understand their contribution. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. So if you had one piece of advice to give our audience, what would that be, George? One piece of advice. Don't tolerate toxic people. (laughs) Ooh, I'm on board with that 100%. Try to avoid toxic people. Don't let them get you down. I used to you know, I mean, everybody, we've all experienced that. And I remember being working offshore in the early days and, and some people, you know, schedules weren't always what you wanted. And, and a lot of people would complain every day. And at some point you got to say, hey, stop complaining. I don't want to hear it. We're all here. We're all toeing the line on your days off. Go look for something else if this isn't for you. You know, I don't want to be around people that are going to be the Debbie Downer negative people. We all have those times and those moments, but we have to rise above it. Yeah, very much so. I like that. I like that a lot. I guess I've gotten to the age where, like, you know, if they are toxic, they're gone. They're no longer a part of my life. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Get too old for the bullcrap, man. Yeah, we don't need it. I mean, you certainly can't let it affect you, you know, physically, mentally. Well, yeah, and that's what it becomes. It becomes a mental thing. Oh, yeah. And then that affects you physically, too. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So what book influenced you the most? Well, I mean, I read the Bible. That's probably influenced me more than anything because I've read it and I think it's a good guidebook of mankind. There may be some others, but that's for me. When I look for you know, guidance from folks, I look to what that's telling me. 
quite honestly. Am I the best loving, serving Christian there is? I'm sure not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's fine. That's pretty human. Yeah. And so, you know, that was a kind of a cliche answer, but it's probably true from a book standpoint. The book I'm reading right now is The Song of the Cell, which is a very detailed book about what we've learned about cellular structure and how cells interact. And it's a remarkable book. Mostly things with science and technology. I like to, I'm amazed at how fast technology has moved just in my lifetime. Yeah, because I mean, don't people in the oil field still use Excel for daily reports? <laughs> <laughs> well, only if they're good. And again, they do that. The oil field's stuck in its way sometimes. Well, and I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, safety and risk. You know, if it's not broken, don't fix it because somebody might die, you know? Well, that's exactly right. That's it. So what's your most used business tool? PowerPoint for me, probably, honestly. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it's easy to use. I mean, you know, spreadsheets, obviously Excel. Speaking of. <laughs> yeah. That Excel and PowerPoint, you know, Microsoft, they've created some cool stuff, but it's the way to communicate things. It's the way to take notes. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we have other things, asset tracking systems, your SAP mm-hmm. systems other business systems that are cool. In the end, it's certainly a, as a leader, when you're having to communicate to folks, PowerPoint's very handy. And then, you know, gathering and analyzing data, Excel is easy to use. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. I agree with that. Actually, I know this sounds nerdy, but I kind of miss using Excel. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a powerful tool. It really is. It really is. I mean, we started out, one of the things about technology, if you look at The first tool that we built, the first rotary steer will ever run in North America, that was in the mid-90s. We had 125K, that's a K, worth of downhole memory that you could put in a downhole tool. Oh, my. And, of course, you know, when you're downhole with these type of systems, they have electronic systems, mechanical systems, software, firmware. They're very, very complicated systems. There's not a lot you can do with 125K today. No. (laughs) Now, of course, fast forward 20, 25 years later, we're building the new technology. We have gigabytes that we can put down hole. We have processor speeds that are probably five times, 10 times what they were when we built our first technology. This has allowed us to enter the realm of down hole automation, self-steering, And so we're now able, using today's modern technology, advance rotary steering forward into more of a self-steering mode. We've had the self-steering of ink hold, inclination hold, direction azimuth hold, where the tool will set itself to achieve those geometric goals on its own. That's pretty cool. But we're moving that forward even more today where we're going to have the tool actually plan wells downhole. Oh, wow. Using its sensors that it has on board, it can replan, reset where the tool face and the dog leg that it needs to achieve its next objective and achieve it. We're also moving it forward into what we call geological steering, which is, of course, geosteering, but where we have the tool use LWD, logging sensors or other sensors downhole that can actually direct the tool how to steer and how to place the wellbore on its own. And so 
this is cool in that we don't have to waste time communicating to the tool from the surface in order to tell it where to go. The reason this is important today, you've probably heard of wired pipe. Wired drill pipe promises to remove that need to automate downhole, but wired pipe is still quite a ways out from being on every drill string that we have. And wired pipe, the reason it removes that need to automate downhole is because when you have an unlimited data transfer speed from the bit to the surface, and you can communicate down to the tool just as fast, you can do all those calculations on the surface and communicate back and forth. Today, the communication speed is so slow on the order of bits per second. Four bits per second is pretty much a norm. 10, 15 bits per second is pretty fast for a downhole device, which is probably almost say it's a thousand times slower than a wired pipe or a wire would be. So it's maybe even more, it's substantially slower than wired pipe. Therefore, if we can have the tool sense its surroundings, understand its position and set itself to achieve its next position, its next well-placement objective, either geometrically or geologically, uh, then we're saving a lot of time and the tool can self-steer. So we're working a lot on that at Kinetic. That would be optimal. That sounds amazing. Yeah, that's an exciting part. And really, that's one of the things that drug me back back into it. Jeff came to me and said, hey, I've figured out a way to mechanically, electronically fix or improve on what we had built before, which made it a completely different technology. And I said, that's awesome. We also have to move it forward in using today's technology, not just in mechanics and electronics, but in the firmware and the algorithms and how we encourage the tool to steer itself. And that really is a game changer in the directional world. Yeah, it seems to be. Well, speaking of the directional world, who's your most respected competitor? Is that even applicable? No. Is that I didn't think so. <laughs> well, we can talk about that. I mean, this is one of the reasons we're still in the game today or got into the game again. You know, today, the rotary steerable market is dominated still by two majors. It's Schlumberger is probably number one globally. Baker Hughes, number two globally. And then you have a smattering of others, including you know, Halliburton coming in. You've got companies like Scientific. You have companies like DTEC, which is really probably a fair independent competitor at this stage. Those tools have some limitations in what they can do, but yeah, I respect them all, honestly, for what they have accomplished, but they have left some good openings in the market. Namely, the cost to run this technology is too high. The ability for the self-steering or two-way communication is only the majors can really do that effectively today. We can directly with those guys head to head because we do have the two-way communication. That is, we can send data from down hole that tells us how the tool is performing. Many of the tools today, there's probably nine or 10 independents that don't have that capability. Which leads me to my next question. What makes you better than said competition? Well, one of the main things that's making us better is the fact that we do have that communication 
we built that into our technology right away. And to accomplish that, that means we had to combine up with the measurement while drilling technology. That's the device downhole that gathers the data up, sends it up hole to the surface so we can interpret it in real time, steer the well, understand what's going on. We built that into the technology first and foremost. And then we looked around the landscape and we saw there's a lot of directional drilling service companies that own a lot of measurement while drilling technology. It's not all the same. Some of it's pretty close to the same. So we made a big effort to make our technology where it could easily combine with those directional companies' tools, the variety of tools that they have. We have a system that very simply we can connect to their MWD tool and we have an antenna on it. And then we can wirelessly communicate from our rotary steerable technology. We short hop information to that MWD tool that other antenna and transmit it to the surface. That's kind of a big deal for a fledgling startup to put that technology right away. (laughs) And the fact that we can communicate, we've probably communicated so far connected with 12 different MWD systems. And so now we're allowing those directional service companies that have those MWD tools to utilize that fleet. We're not thrusting one on them. Same thing with a mud motor. They can choose the motor they want to run with the tool. It doesn't have a bend in it, but it allows us to get horsepower to the bit only. And so that's a big deal. When those customers, the directional drilling providers, can utilize a lot of their assets, they just have to add our rotary steerable into the mix. Our system has the ability to drill vertically. It can drill a high dogleg curve which is anywhere from 8 to 12 degrees per hundred, and drill the lateral, meaning 90 degrees or approximately 90 degrees, using the same BHA in one run. That is not available to the vast majority of tools that are on the market today. So that is a very unique capability where we can drill a high dogleg curve and accomplish vertical curve and lateral with the same bit and BHA. That's awesome. That saves so much time. That's a great benefit. Yeah, yeah. Some of the other things is simplicity. We have, you know, very few components, parts counts in our system. It is electromechanical. And so fewer parts means implied reliability and value. It's going to be simpler, right? It's not going to cost us as much to repair. We can repair this tool a lot cheaper. Therefore, the running cost is cheaper which of course allows you to compete because that's what operators want. They want the same value, the same good stuff they get with the big guys. They want all of that, but they'd like to pay less for it. Right. Right. So you have to be able to repair the tool cheaper than the other guys to achieve that goal. The biggest thing, the biggest advantage that we have over the majority of the tools that are out there today, most of the tools that are out there today are push the bit systems They actually use hydraulic energy, either directly from the mud flow or indirectly from the mud flow. They take that mud flow energy, they apply a side force. They push a paddle or a piston and leverage it off the formation to push the bit in the opposite direction. That requires taking some of the hydraulic energy and using it for directional control, which means that the hydraulic energy cannot now be used for hole cleaning 
or for jet impact for making ROP. It also means that the force that you're going to be able to steer with 15,000 feet out is less than the force that you can steer with at 1,000 feet out. So it's more difficult to steer the further you drill with the systems. Our system does not use hydraulic energy to generate its side force. We use electromechanical energy and apply an internal offset to apply an external force to the bit, which now means that you can take all that hydraulic energy that other systems use and put it back into making whole, increasing your ROP. Very good. Very good. And for those that don't know what BHA is, it's bottom hole assembly. Thank you. Yes, that's the bottom <laughs> 100 to 200 feet of the drill string that screws right into the bit. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So, George, after all this time, what is your most important lesson learned? Jerry Jones of the Cowboys fame, which I wasn't a huge fan of, of Jerry's. I mean, I respect his business prowess and what he's done, but I was a Tom Landry fan. That dates me. <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't real happy when he bought it. But Jerry Jones said it to be an entrepreneur, to take this kind of risk, you have to have a tolerance for ambiguity. And so anybody that is, you know, going to go into this world and start a business, I don't care what it is, there's going to be times when there's going to be uncertainty. You're not going to know how you're going to get that technical thing fixed or who you're going to find to do that or how you're going to replace this employee that was key. Lots of these hurdles get in the way and there's always this ambiguity going on around you. You have to learn to embrace that a little bit. That's not easy, but I would say that if I had advice for people that were going to go enter into a business for themselves to prepare for that and just be ready and don't let it get to you. Just keep persevering and you'll overcome it. Well, entrepreneurship is not for the weak. So, yeah. <laughs> so why is your role now, George, important to the future of the industry? Well, the big reason it is, is when I first started in this oil field back in the mid-80s, oil companies were still at the tail end of the people who brought new technology to the industry. The Exxons, the Chevrons, the Conocos of the world had big departments where they, you know, had research centers where they were the ones that said, this is what we need and we're going to hire the scientists and engineers to build it and develop it for us. That changed about in the late 80s and that role really shifted to the service entities. Then that opened the door for a lot of smaller entities that recognized a need. They recognized a need. This product's too expensive. It's not efficient. It doesn't do, does X and Y. It doesn't do Z. They find these niches and so they embark on that and so the service companies, especially the small service companies, have evolved into being the technology developers of the industry. And operators recognize that today in many ways. And so they now try to encourage small companies and sometimes they help support small companies, especially if it's a product that they need. Rather than do it internally, they will go to small service companies to get some of their pet projects accomplished. So that's changed quite a bit. Yeah, it sure has. So here's a bit of a curveball for you. 
What are your thoughts about telling someone about the oil and gas industry that doesn't understand the industry? Well, the cliche one there is show me something that you build without using a hydrocarbon. Right. You just can't. Anything you use today, it just doesn't. You know, hydrocarbons are in every fiber of our culture. (laughs) I mean, they're just here to stay. And there are, you know, certainly we have a responsibility to keep it cleaner, more efficient. We have a need to do that as a people. I would say to people, know that there's opportunities out there in this business. You can make a great living in the energy business. It's got a great soul. Energy business is a great soul. The hydrocarbon business is a great soul. And it's got its own kind of culture. It's a smaller world. It's amazing to go around the world after you've been in this business a while and you run into people everywhere. You meet a lot of new people, but you run into people you've seen in the industry. So yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Do you have a favorite podcast? Well, besides yours, I'm going to say the most listened to podcast is Meat Eaters. Oh, do tell. Meat Eaters? <laughs> I'm trying to think of the, I should know the gentleman's name, but I like to hunt and fish a little bit. And oh, Meat Eater is a really great guy. He's a very responsible hunter. Fisher, he hunts all over the world. He cooks exceptional with all this game that he... Well, and that's where I thought we were going. I kind of thought it was a grilling podcast. (laughs) He does a lot of grilling, a lot of cooking with all of the wild game that he harvests. And yeah, my son actually turned me on to that. And it's pretty interesting. I think the guy's on video too. Okay. He's evolved into... Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to tell my boyfriend about that. That's something he'd be interested in. Meat eaters. Yeah, it's a great one. Good, good, good deal. All right. Well, thank you so much again for joining me, George. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Kinetic Upstream Technologies, how might they go about doing that? www.kineticupstream.com. And of course, you're on LinkedIn, right? I'm on LinkedIn, George Sutherland. Reach out to me either way. Perfect. Okay. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.